You can look at, I would say, 95% of all of the environmental issues out there, and you can trace them back to animal agriculture and the effect that animal agriculture creates, the havoc that it wreaks Mm -hmm. on these different environmental issues. That's Susie Amos Cameron, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, people, how you doing? What's going on? What's happening? Happy holidays. Do you have the holiday spirit? I got the holiday spirit. My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to the show. This is the show where I do my best to have meaningful conversations with compelling individuals, people who are challenging social norms and breaking cultural paradigms to create a better world for all of us. So anyway, thank you so much for tuning in today for subscribing to the show on iTunes, for taking a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. If you haven't done that already, please take a moment to do that. Uh, It really is a great benefit to us. I appreciate it. And of course, for always using the Amazon banner ad for all your holiday shopping needs. doesn't cost you a cent extra. Just click through the banner ad on my site, richroll.com, and then buy whatever you're going to buy. And Amazon kicks us some loose commission change from their side of the equation. And that really helps us keep the bandwidth flowing and continue to do what we do here. So perhaps you know today's guest from one of her 25 roles on the big screen, appearing in movies like Titanic, Fandango, or The Usual Suspects. Or maybe you know her as the better half of the world's most successful film director, James Cameron, the incomparable, brilliant mind behind the biggest cinematic blockbusters of all time. Movies we've all seen like Aliens, Terminator, Titanic, and of course, Avatar, the highest grossing movie of all time. But in addition to being a mom to five kids, Susie Amos Cameron is also this incredibly passionate, pioneering environmental activist and philanthropist, as well as an innovative educator and founder, along with her sister Rebecca, of Muse, which is an incredibly forward-thinking K-12 school focused on empowerment, individualized curriculum, creative and critical thinking, environmentalism, and global sustainability. In other words, it's this amazing institution devoted to preparing young people to live consciously within themselves, one another, and the planet which is a pretty great vision, if you ask me. And I got a whole bunch more I want to say about Susie in a minute before we get into the interview, but first. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers 
to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I first met Susie a couple years ago. We became pals. I uh, actually didn't meet James until this past spring. That was an extraordinary experience. He had such nice things to say about my book, Finding Ultra, which was just a mind blower. I couldn't even believe that he actually read it, let alone had nice things to say to me about it. It's just That's just crazy. Uh, but in any event, Susie invited me to speak at Muse last year. That's when I got sort of indoctrinated and introduced to what she's doing at this incredible institution. And now our two daughters, who have been historically homeschooled, unschooled, uh, are now students at Muse. Uh, and you might be familiar with this institution because it grabbed international headlines this past year when it became the first school in the U.S. to implement a 100 percent plant-based school lunch program, which is extraordinary. Uh, Muse has been quite an amazing experience for our girls as well as for Julie and I. It's an amazing community, and it's really challenging outdated educational paradigms and modalities and stands as a groundbreaking model for a new way to foster what's best about the next generation, in my opinion. Uh, and I'm super impressed with Susie. Of course, she lives in quite rare air, and most people of her stature, of her circumstances, would most likely choose a life of least resistance, of leisure, of luxury, but that is not Susie. For the last 25 years, she has dedicated herself to environmental causes. Every breath she takes is in service to a better world, from leveraging her resources and influence to combat global climate change and our healthcare crisis, most recently through Food Choice Task Force, which is an organization that she and James founded in 2014 that's focused on showing the impact of animal agriculture on climate change and the environment, to identifying and implementing better ways to educate the next generation. She is relentless. She is tireless. She is a true living example of advocacy and action. And this is a great conversation about her extraordinary life. It's a conversation about the intricate, intertwined relationship between our actions and the biosphere. It's about championing sustainable values from what we do to what we wear, to how we teach our children, to the food we eat. And of course, 
It's about what it's like to be married to Hollywood's most successful director. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down with Susie in her beautiful home in Malibu for this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope it helps you think more deeply and critically about our place in the world, about how you choose to spend your free time, and how our choices impact our personal health and the current and future health of the planet. So without further ado, pull up a seat in Susie's office and enjoy. I'm surprised that you guys are not in Paris right now for COP21. Were we, you originally supposed to go? We were supposed to go, actually. And the two events that I was going to be speaking at were both canceled. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the um, the one that uh, that Jim was going to be doing was canceled as well. And then there was one that we were supposed to show up to together. And it they basically just, you know, made it smaller and smaller and smaller and and just kind of kept key people there Mm. so so it didn't make sense anymore no and we were planning on taking the children and making a whole trip out of it and it just didn't feel like we could walk into paris and be celebratory and Mm -hmm. have a fun time and and um it's sad yeah it's really sad it's tragic. You know, we were just chatting before the podcast about how I had been in Beirut, you know, and left two days before the bombings there. And then Paris happens. And, you know, it's tragic beyond measure and beyond explanation and words. And then to have the juxtaposition of that butting up against COP21 and the sort of promise that that holds uh, creates a weird kind of, I would think, sort of emotional dynamic for that event to take place where they're grappling with such important issues. But there's also a city that's grieving and the world that's grieving over that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, I think the, um, oh, there, there's so many levels to it. Uh, personally, I lived there for three and a half years, so oh, I'm devastated for the people, the, you know, of France and Paris and, and all of that. And, um, you know, we were really excited about going because we've created a, um, an organization called Food Choice Task Force and had all kinds of different presentations and speeches and connections that we wanted to make because the connection between animal agriculture and climate change really isn't a big topic at COP mm-hmm. right now. And we wanted to bring, you know, shine light on that. Um, the Chatham House study. Yeah, there's a brand new study that just came out, right? So That's explain right. what that is. That's right. So it's the um, the first one came out um, about a year and a half ago. And that one was really the first piece of looking at the numbers of what it, what are those greenhouse gases that are going out into the world that are created by animal agriculture. And this is something that People just aren't looking at. So if you think about what's causing climate change, the greenhouse gases that are, that are going out there, the number one is fossil fuels, the energy sector. We know that. People know that. Number three is transportation. Mm-hmm. Transportation's huge. People think about it all the time. They go out, they get a Prius, they get an electric car, they try you know, to carpool and do all of those, ride a bicycle, all of those things. Number two is animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. And people just don't 
they don't think about it. They don't connect the dots. And this was, you know, Jim, Jim had actually known about it for a very long time, but just thought that, you know, you needed to eat meat and have dairy for strong muscles and strong bones. And after we watched Forks Over Knives three and a half years ago, which was a huge aha moment, Mm -hmm. he kind of realized, you know, not only is meat and dairy not necessary to be healthy, but it's also not good for you. Mm So we went cold turkey. Right. Well, let's let's like like park it there for a minute. We can yeah. get back to the Chatham study and just get into the yeah, story sorry. of like, no, it's okay. They, I mean, we're, you know, there's, look, we could talk all day. I know, you know I, I mean? know. So exactly. <laughs> we'll try exactly. to structure it a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, so so Jim, I'm going to call him Jim. Is that okay? Yes, all right. I call him Jim. We're pals, right? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you could call him Jim. I'm not sure if I can, but I'm going to anyway. Um you know, well-known as a long-term environmentalist, you know, going back many, many, many years. Uh, <clears throat> but the whole introduction of plant-based diet is, you know, relatively recent on the landscape, but it's really changed and shaped kind of your, the focal point of your advocacy in many, many ways. So, so let's go back to that sort of moment of discovering Forks Over Knives and the impact that that's had on you and your marriage and your family and the work that you guys do. Um, yeah, so... Three and a half years ago, it was actually May 6th. Um, you remember the day. I remember the wow. day. It was so profound. Um, my friend Elliot, uh, Elliot Washer of Big Picture Schools um, kept telling me about Forks Over Knives and how great it was, and I really needed to watch it. It sat here in this office for about nine months, and I finally grabbed it on May 6th, and I took it down to the gym, and I uh-huh. plunked it in the... It's like one of those movies you're like, yeah, I know I should watch it, but like, not today. (laughs) I didn't really know what it was going to tell me because he's, he is not the typical, you know, go plant-based and get born again kind of thing, (laughs) which so many people get that way when they, when they realize what a great lifestyle it gives you. Um, But he told me about it. And when people tell me about a good book or a good DVD, I'm an info, you know, info Mm -hmm. junkie and I like to read it or see it or so anyway, I watched it and I brought the DVD up to the house and I found Jim and I said, I need an hour and a half of your time tomorrow. And he said, Oh cool. Where are we going? And Mm -hmm. I said, we're not going to go anywhere. He's, I said, we're going to watch a movie. He said, Oh great. I love movies. What are we going to watch? I said, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I just want to sit and watch it and then talk about it afterwards. So we brought our 12-year-old girl in with us and our uh, 13-year-old nephew. And we watched it. And I was really, my heart was pounding because I wanted, I really wanted it to affect him the same way that it affected me. We both have cancer and heart disease in our families. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, we were getting to a point where doctors were starting to talk to us about our hearts and, you know, being careful and all of those mm-hmm. things. Meanwhile, we thought we were eating really healthy. Everything was organic, grass-fed, um, free-range, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. And this is 2007? Mm-hmm. Um, when was it? 12. Oh, 2012. Okay. Yeah, three, uh-huh. three, three and a half years ago. Um Anyway, we watched it. He had just come home from 
a trip. I think he had been in China. And I couldn't tell if he was falling asleep during the movie. So I sat really close to him and kept moving around <laughs> so uh-huh. he wouldn't fall asleep. But he wasn't falling asleep. And he was paying full attention to it because by the time we got from our TV room into the kitchen, he said, we shouldn't have any more animal products in this house ever. Hmm. And within 24 hours, the whole pantry refrigerator was cleaned out. And we also had uh, goats up at our ranch. So we got fresh goat yogurt, goat cheese, and goat milk Mm -hmm. once a week. And within 48 hours, we closed down production of that. We kept the goats for a while as fire abatement. Um, And plus they're cute and they're kind of pets. So, um, and we, you know, we went cold Turkey. That's how we roll. But I know, I know amazing, like sort of, you know, incredibly impactful. There's an immediacy to that, that I think is unusual for a lot of people. I mean, certainly, obviously it profoundly impacted him and you guys acted like in the moment. That's crazy. I mean, what did your kids, were your kids like, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Are we getting, are we getting any input on this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> that must have been a rough patch. Um, you know, it was a little bit, but we were able to sort of generate delicious, yummy food right away. We we discovered veggie grill, you know, so mm-hmm. that was kind of an eat, although our kids never ate fast food anyway. Um, but there are, you know, there were a lot of really tasty choices mm-hmm. with that. And, and we just figured out how to make yummy food pretty quickly because mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're food oriented. The, um, where the, um, the goats were kept up at our ranch, we actually completely planted that. So we grow about 90% of our, our own vegetables. So they really got into gardening and harvesting and cooking themselves, which really helped. Um, and, you know, again, we, you know, we realize that that's not, that's not possible for everyone in the world. And mm-hmm. it's not possible to go cold turkey. It's just some people need to ease well, into it, it, it more. Well, it is possible. It's just some people, uh, it's, you know, I don't, I, I think... It's important to give people permission to to find their own way through it and to yeah. say it's cool to be transitioning and to, you know, experiment and do all that kind of stuff. I'm kind of a cold turkey guy myself. Yeah. Uh, but even for me, it took a little bit of adjustment. You know, it wasn't perfect or completely linear. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so then how long did it take before kind of this messaging found its way into the advocacy work that, that you guys do together? Well, both of us. I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why why we connected so much when we met 20 years ago was how involved we were in the environment um, and environmental circles. And again, Jim knew so much about the connection between animal agriculture and climate change. Um, but he didn't ever really talk about it because he really believed that you needed you know, animal right. protein and all of that. What ended up happening after that, um, and I, I, I do mark watching Forks Over Nile, uh, over, for, I really do mark <laughs> Forks Over Knives um, as a moment of just the lifting of the veil and realizing how much our society is lied to every day 
um, I grew up in Oklahoma and was, we raised cows and pigs and had our own milk and all of those things. And my mom is still saying, you girls drink your milk. You mm-hmm. want to have strong bones. Well, of course. I and mean, she, that's, you know, we've all been told that our entire lives. It's, exactly. It's beyond questioning. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it, it feels yucky to, you know, to have to be lied to and, and led down a road that's, you know, for somebody else's bottom line, which, and it's really bad for you. Mm-hmm. So that, that marked that moment. And then once we went plant-based, Jim really started educating me and giving me books because we went crazy reading everything we could around whether, whether it, it, whether it connected with health or the environment, but it just was like this cascade of just a marathon uber marathon of reading and watching uh, documentaries and Mm -hmm. getting our hands on everything that we possibly could. So that was kind of the moment. What were some of the more impactful books and films? Um, Well, we happened upon a a, a short little film that you can get on YouTube called Devour the Earth. I haven't seen that. It's, you can just Google it. It's uh, narrated by Paul McCartney. And it's about 18, 20 minutes long. And everything you need to know about animal agriculture and the climate mm. and climate change is in that little short video. Mm. Um, and it was, was actually 95. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And it actually in the beginning, because they've updated it now. Uh-huh. But in the beginning, they kind of apologized that for the quality of the film because it was made in 1995. Mm-hmm. But it's so relevant. That's amazing because I think wasn't the the UN report that came out that kind of provides the basis for cowspiracy that was two thousand eight right I think yeah seven or eight the the long shadow right and that that kind of you know in mainstream culture no one really paid attention it was only probably only people like Jim were people that were like reading that kind of stuff it takes movies like cowspiracy to introduce those concepts to the mainstream public but. You know, 2008, that still was, you know, a couple of years before you guys watched Forks Over Knives. Right. And it's interesting that, you know, James being such the ardent environmentalist and yourself as well, that still you guys were holding on to the health component as the thing holding you back from kind of taking the complete leap. Where for a lot of people, you know, I think them seeing Cowspiracy was that was the final thing that they didn't know about. Yeah. Well, the health piece was for Jim. Mm hmm. Um, right. For me, I didn't even know about the environmental impacts at all, which is was kind of my second marker in one of those moments that other people do know about this. Mm-hmm. But what was shocking to me was the environmental circles that I ran in, nobody was talking about it. Mm-hmm. No one. Yeah, and I w- when I did bring it up, I was pretty shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very a very interesting kind of thing to explore a little bit if you're comfortable doing it, because I, I would imagine you're rubbing elbows with and, and probably sitting on boards of, you know, the, the sort of gold standard organizations out there. Like, I don't know which one specifically, but the ones we all know about, you know, whether it's Greenpeace, you know, all these sort of organizations that kind of had their bell rung in Cowspiracy and aren't really talking about these issues. So even though there are there is the UN report and there's all this evidence out there, what do you think it is 
that is preventing these organizations from wanting to discuss this issue and, and flush it out and really kind of advocate? Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where it, it becomes like, like an onion and you just keep pulling back the layers. And I, I always say you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And once you start down this path of finding out this information and the more information you find out, the more you uncover, the more you find out, the more you uncover. And it's just mind boggling. But I think, um, when this, when it first happened and we, um, I went back to the organizations that I was working with and brought it up to them and they realized that I, you know, I've always been very uh, passionate about food. Even Muse School was founded on all mm-hmm. organic snacks and lunches. It was organic dairy mm-hmm. and, you know, grass-fed beef, all of those kinds of things. Um, we have now since gone 100% plant-based, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that. Good. Um, but what ended up happening when I went back and I started talking about the fact that we were, we were talking about dead zones in the oceans. We were talking about endangered species. We were talking about um, deforestation. We were talking about biodiversity loss. We were talking about um, creating sanctuaries in the oceans. What I realized was that there is a direct link to all of those things. If you put animal agriculture in the middle of that, create a Venn diagram, they all connect to deforestation, mm-hmm. to dead zones, to biodiversity loss, the ice caps melting. You know, so when you get that little ad in the in the mail to donate to save the polar bears, to save the wolves. Our daughter was really in, that was her passion at school, was mm-hmm. it all about wolves. And she studied them for four years. When we found out why the wolves are really endangered, it's because they're getting killed by yeah, the they're getting cattle. cleared out for cattle ranching. That's right, mm-hmm. for cattle ranching. So you can, you can look at, I would say, 95% of all of the environmental issues out there. And you can trace them back to animal agriculture and the effect that animal agriculture creates, the havoc that it mm-hmm. wreaks on these different environmental issues. Um, so when I brought it up, I was definitely shut down and um, actually sort of stepped back from, um, from supporting um, some of these organizations. Mm-hmm. Were you given an explanation or just the brush off? Well... I wrote a long letter and sent it, and I was the reply that came back was, um, you know, we will get back with you with a, a formal reply, mm. which never came. The cool thing is, the really cool thing is that um, from that from that situation, Jim and I pulled together all of the usual suspects of the health sector. So we had um, the Campbells and the Esselsteins and um, uh, Ornish and McDougall um, 
And then we had environmentalists with us, um, Oppenlander, Jim Hicks, mm-hmm. um, people from the Nature Conservancy and the um, Environmental Defense Fund. And we created a summit because clearly the, the health sector has it going on. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are pushing the message out there like crazy. There are a handful of people in the environmental world that are pushing it out there. But to get the two of them in the same place mm-hmm. at the same time on the same page, right. that was our goal. And out of that came uh, the Food Choice Task Force. Out of the Food Choice Task Force um, came a campaign called My Plate, My Planet, which was created when the U.S. Dietary Guidelines came out. Mm-hmm. And that was a really exciting moment. It's because it's unprecedented, mm-hmm. and they really linked health and the environment, mm-hmm. you know, under the U.S. Dietary Guidelines. Right. What, what will ultimately... Which kicked up all this controversy. And, Yay. And the, yeah, the, <laughs> the sort of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the response to that, the, the sort of meat and dairy industry response to that is sustainability arguments have no place in forming dietary guidelines, right? Exactly, exactly. So then... Um, we created this campaign. We pulled out those pieces and um, called up all of the the um, environmental NGOs. And the ones that we had a lot of issues with, they were the first ones to sign on. Oh, it's great. So they've done an about-face. Mm-hmm. And what's really exciting is that um, I have I am now taking over um, as executive director of Food Choice Task Force. So I understand Food Choice Task Force is is a nonprofit, and it's is it funded by your other by the your main nonprofit, or how does it? And it, did it is it behind kind of getting these Chatham reports researched and published, or what is the relationship to these two Chatham reports to kind of bring it back to how we opened it up? Um. Yes, we do meander, don't we? Yeah, I know. It's okay. I always bring it back <laughs> Just around. get me going. Yeah, it's good. Um, what ended up, actually, that was the other thing that came out of the summit that we created, was the fact that we didn't have that number of just what were the greenhouse what were the greenhouse gas emissions because everything you know from the long shadow they they published eighteen percent. Mm-hmm. There were other. Um, Published um, published papers that came out that it was anything from thirteen percent to fifty one percent, and Jim and I knew we're very well aware of the fact that you know when people, if they're connected with Hollywood, if you go out and you really want to talk about something very serious, the good thing is to have you know have science behind you. And so we actually, um, we approached Chatham House about doing a research project um, about the connection between animal agriculture and climate change. Mm-hmm. So that was the first part of the, the Chatham House study. And what is Chatham House? Like, what it, just explain who they, who they are. They are, I don't know if I can even do them justice. If you want the highest peer-reviewed research done you go to chatham house they're the guys they are the Uh dudes yeah absolutely 
Um, if you want your report to just be rock solid and unassailable, like they know how to get that done. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. So they, and they were really excited. No one had ever approached them about doing, doing a research paper like this ever. And they'd been chomping at the bit to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did that. And then the second part of it, which was just published is, um, we, we did focus groups around the world. So I, I believe it's five different countries. And they went in with every different demographic that you can imagine. They went in and asked them all, you know, what would make them change their diets? And before they asked them that, they asked them that question cold, and then they gave them the information about the environment. And the majority of them switched around and said, you know, that they would do it for whether it was health, uh, for the environment, for the future of their children. Mm-hmm. Um, Pure vanity. Well, that's the funny thing. <laughs> yeah. is the ultimate motivator. Right. Yeah. So um, we went to China, or I shouldn't say we, they went to China, and they had focus groups in China, which is one of the most polluted places on the earth. Mm-hmm. And the women of China, hands down, said the reason why they would do it was because they wanted beautiful skin and slender bodies. Mm. Slender, healthy bodies, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, and, you know, that that is the beauty of a plant-based diet. It doesn't matter if you're doing it for the cute, fluffy animals or for the environment or for your health or, you know, to be have beautiful skin and a nice, slim, healthy body. It checks every box. It does. It's like win, 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 win. And, it, you know, you, you end up... You end up, you know, even saving money because it's not as expensive, first of all, to even, you know, purchase everything and prepare it, but you end up not going to the doctor as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jim and I have been completely healthy for three and a half years. No f- fevers, no flus, no, you know, I mean, he used to get two to three colds a year and the flu. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing, nada. Right. And he lost a bunch of weight, too. <laughs> he right, lost he? probably 35 pounds. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he just turned 61, and he, you know, he runs five five miles on the beach barefoot. He's weigh- He's lifting more weight than he's ever lifted in his whole life. He does, you know, he works out seven days a week. He oh, does yoga three times a, a week, and then he works out with weights four times a week. I mean, he's unstoppable. I've, I literally have watched him get younger. Uh-huh. That's crazy. Yeah. Especially, you know, with the sort of little empire that you guys are running. Like, I can't imagine the sort of daily pressures and all the various responsibilities that you guys have to live up to every single day here. It's quite the operation. So you need that that childlike uh, level <laughs> of enthusiasm and energy, right? Yeah. Coming at a high level. Yeah. It's intense. I mean, it's... it's um, it, it's something, it, I'm, I'm glad you said that because it's something that, um, that I, I really like to, to put out there because we do have, we, we do have an amazing, unusual life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jim grew up in a, a tiny little town in, in Canada. I grew up in Oklahoma and what we, what we do realize is that there are things that we have available to us that that a lot of people don't. 
And we have a platform that we're able to use in a way. I mean, we could be taking selfies and eating chocolate bonbons and reading movie magazines, I suppose, if we really wanted to. But we take our platform and our place in society very, very seriously. And we, I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why we did have that big conversation about starting Food Choice Task Force, because we really want to do something to make the world a better place for our children to grow up in. Mm -hmm. Not only our children, but the children of the world. Right. Well, yeah, you live in rare air and and you have this, you know, very sort of uh, privileged existence and, and perhaps that could that could mean for some people, well, I can't relate to them or whatever. But knowing you guys a little bit, like you're incredibly grounded people and you could be doing anything. Like you have choices that most people don't have. Uh, but the fact that you have decided to really invest in this commitment and make it your life's mission you know, beyond the creative projects and, and even perhaps beyond the school to get this message out there, I mean, I think speaks volumes to your character because you could be sitting on a beach somewhere doing nothing, I suppose, right? I mean, and yet you're, you're you know, <clears throat> working, you know, tirelessly to advance this, um, you know, this idea of trying to save our planet's precious resources and preserve our bounty for future generations. And I can't think of anything more aspirational or laudatory than that so you know nothing but mad respect Mm, for that and maybe that's a good place to kind of well there's two things i want i want to talk about muse school but before we get into that maybe this is a good place to kind of talk about how uh you know what your thoughts are in terms of taking you know this knowledge base that you have and this understanding that you have about the environment and the perilous situation that we're in and the kind of um, benefits of a plant-based diet and how we communicate, how we message this to mainstream audiences, to you know people that aren't so fortunate or people that are just trying to pay the bills and get through the day. Like how, how can we sort of penetrate um, the, the consciousness of the average American to get these ideas across and create solutions that make it easier and and more facile and more attractive for them to kind of take this leap that has had such a tremendous impact on your life? That's the big question. Isn't isn't it? it? Right? Yeah, it is. Because ultimately this can't be, you know, this is not an elitist ideal, but it can be interpreted as such. And sometimes when you're having, uh, high-level conversations with people that, that aren't necessarily average Americans. It can be perceived as, well, this is just something that, you know, people that I can't relate to talk about. But it has to be something for everybody, right? So how do we accomplish this? Right. I'm not saying that you have to have the solution, but this no, is what this is I the want thing it. That, this is what we're <laughs> this is what we need to be focusing on, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. And it is what I spend every moment of my day from the moment mm-hmm. I wake up in the morning and I wake up a lot with a pit in my stomach of what what else? What else can I do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is that magic bullet that will wake people up in a way that to make them understand, you know, what the connection is and they'll feel so much better and it'll help the environment and, you know, all of, all of the different things that a plant-based diet does for you. Um, I will start with a story. Okay. 
about two weeks after Jim and I went plant-based, we were up at our ranch. And he's kind of a doomsday kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch his movies and, you know, he's, <laughs> yeah. um, he really is always worried endlessly about the future of our world and um, spoke about it regularly and yet always trying to look for solutions. I mean, looking at renewable energies, at, you know, anything that would, that would make a difference in, in our environment, looking for, you know, different kinds of fuels and, I mean, experimenting and creating things, as we know he knows how to do. And we were walking on the beach, and he said, he s- said to me, for the first time in my life, I have hope. And if there's a way for us to get the message out to the world about how important it is to change what's on our plate, we have hope. Mm-hmm. Because we can, we can make all of the changes in the energy sector. We can make all of the changes in the transportation sector. It'll take a long time, much longer than we have. But if we don't change what's on our plate, along with those other two things, we will never meet our two-degree target. Mm-hmm. He said, so I actually have... The two-degree target meaning uh, temperature change. Correct. Yeah. Um, so he said, for the first time, I, I, really, I really have hope because changing what's on your plate isn't going to take 20 years. Mm-hmm. You don't have to buy a Prius. You don't have to change your light bulbs even. You just change what's on your plate. And every single person has the power to do that themselves. And it's always a question after we give a speech. What can I do? What can one little person do to make a difference? Well, you can look at what's on your plate. Mm -hmm. So it takes us back to the Chatham House study. And that's why we did the second half of it with the focus groups to find out what would make them change. Um, and we're currently working on, you know, marketing and, and, um, marketing research and looking at, you know, what are the different campaigns that will speak to the different demographics, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, I personally will go very strongly after moms and women because they make 85% of the decisions, the purchasing decisions in the household. Right. And if you, if you educate a young woman, then ultimately you're educating an entire family down the line. Correct. And the ripple effect of that is tremendous. Yeah, it is. It is. So, yeah, your question, you know, how do you, how do you go into one of these tiny little towns and, and make a difference when they're complete, they, they don't have the education. They are steeped in their traditions and those kinds of things. The, the irony is that, you know, even back to Egyptian times, the poor people were eating plants. Mm-hmm. It was only the affluent that were eating animal products. Mm-hmm. And because of the way the world has gone, everyone... Everyone wants that status of being able to eat meat. I had a, um, a good friend, a Chinese woman, a very good friend, 
And she grew up in very, very poor. And then she, she ended up to be, you know, a very, very affluent woman. And she said, all I could think about when I was young and eating plants is that I was going to grow up and I was going to be rich and I was going to eat meat. Right. And now I'm vegan. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, it's a real problem in the developing world where you're seeing like the ascension of a middle class in China and people finally having, you know, enough money to rub together to buy the foods that they didn't grow up with. Right. And that's, you know, with the way that we export our diet and lifestyle overseas is creating all kinds of calamities for the first time in human history. And I've seen it in the Middle East and I know it's, you know, a gigantic problem in China. So when we talk about shifting these habits, you know, we tend to focus on the United States and our healthcare crisis here and school lunch and all these sorts of things. But, you know, it really is a global problem. But back to your point of, of, you know, communicating to the average person, it's an interesting dynamic because on the one hand, it's incredibly empowering. And we're, we're a populace of people that feel very disempowered. We feel like our vote doesn't count. What can we do? There's nothing we can do to make a difference. And it's easy to be lazy. And yet here is this one thing that you can do that has this massive impact, this incredible ripple effect. And that creates self-esteem. It makes you feel good about yourself. It's like a beautiful thing, but it really is a grassroots campaign to of one person at a time or one town hall to like get that across over time. Right. You know? Yeah. So we're really looking at every different angle we can possibly hit, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, from the ground up or from the top down, because we've got, you know, policymakers that we're, that are very much on board with us as well, uh, being able to help move the needle that way. But it's true. You can, you can move the needle all by yourself. Right. You know, so, um, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that, People, some people do think that it's uh, elitist to to be plant based and and all of that, which is it it is so ironic. However, I think the more the more role models that are out there and talking about being plant based, I mean, in a funny way, it's probably going to switch completely 180 where. Um, people are going to start to look at some people of affluence that have that have gone plant based or celebrities or you know whoever they are because there are lots and lots of celebrities and more every single day that are going plant based because they realize it gives them an edge. Mm-hmm. They look better. They've got more energy, and you know they've. And, and athletes, obviously. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you speak to that all the time. I mean, athletes absolutely, plant-based athletes have an edge over animal-based athletes. Mm-hmm. I guess that's how you'd say it. Animal-based <laughs> athletes. Yeah. We're still getting over that hump. There's a lot of work to, to, to do to uh, really get people to embrace that idea. But right. I'm working right. on it. But, you know, I mean, I do have... Um, I do have entry with uh, the educational sectors, and I think that that's a, a big thing. And with women, you know, it, it is the women that are in the carpool circles. They're in the knitting circles. They're in the yoga circles. They're in the grocery circles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being able to to really tap into to that is, is huge. And, you know, you spoke earlier about the younger crowd. 
it's amazing how many, certainly with the the study that we did, how many of the younger crowd, that sort of the twenty fives and unders, um, they really are concerned about the environment, and they're super open to plant based mm. diet. They, you know, there's they don't have that like built in resistance because they didn't grow up with the same sort of messaging that we did. Um, and I find them to be incredibly receptive. And I think the, you know, the environmental message really speaks to younger people. It's difficult to penetrate them with the health message because when you're young, like who cares? Right. <laughs> you know I mean? right. But like, but they really do care about the environment and that, that messaging really mm-hmm. seems to resonate profoundly yeah. with them. And that makes me optimistic and hopeful in the face of crazy statistics that would make you pessimistic when I meet young people and I see how excited they are about it. And then they go and they message their friends and all of that. Like it's a cool thing that's happening. So it's this kind of bifurcated approach where you're, you're doing the one-on-one, you know, individual to individual, but at the same time, there's giant policy changes that have to you know, that have to shift with, you know, how we, you know, for example, like farm subsidies and, um, you know, how, how school lunch works and all the gigantic conglomerate business interests that come into play that kind of create uh, loggerheads with implementing change at a high level going down. Right. Well, I think we're ripe for this conversation, um, you know, on the, on the tales of the U.S. Dietary Guidelines and the World Health Organization announcement that came out. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that there have been certainly the backlash with that. But you you can completely look at it in a way of the way the, the smoking campaigns went. Mm-hmm. The smoking campaigns and the anti-smoking campaigns. And all you have to do is take smoking out and put meat in, meat and dairy in. Yeah, it's, they're, taking a, they're, they're using the exact same playbook. Exactly. So hopefully, you exactly. know, because of, you know, the astuteness of the American public having sort of weathered that in the past, we'll be able to accelerate how long it took for, you know, because I think the whole smoking thing went on for like, it took like 50 years or something like that for that to get sorted out. Um, so hopefully we can expedite that time window. Yeah, well, I think things do get accelerated now and and, and people get found out easier. You know, it's... Um, if you're if you're looking at the you know the the difference between um the way the it it's it's basically just the way information is shared around the world now well the immediacy of it is unprecedented i mean exactly. and i think you know, the fact that we all have something that we hold in our hands that can answer any question that we have is you know is I don't know that we fully appreciate you know, how insanely amazing that is. Right. And so, yeah, I think that accelerates the whole process. And I think, you know, just the fact that a young person can look something up and immediately get the answer to anything that, that, that spikes their curiosity is, is really, you know, beyond comprehend. I mean, can you imagine being 12 and being, you know, having something like that? I mean, Mm-mm. I can't even fathom it. But at the same time, I think what gets built into that is a growing, um, demand for transparency on all fronts from the businesses that we patronize to the governments and the elected officials everything and when when young people see a lack of transparency mm-hmm. alarm bells go off whereas when we were younger it's like well you you know there's three channels and you get your news at night and you know there was no really ability to question anything um, in a way that would be facile without going into the basement of some library and getting microfiche out and, 
writing a term paper that no one's going to read. You know what I mean? Now, right. like the way that information can get spread, um, y y there's a lack of tolerance for kind of hiding the ball, I think. Yeah. And I think that that bodes well for things getting sorted out in a positive way. Yeah, I think so, because it's it's it ultimately is about the fact, yeah, when we were growing up, it was just like, okay, that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're supposed to eat because that's what they tell us on the commercials and, right. you know, that's what's going to make us healthy and strong. And I think, I think kids do question much, much more. And, you know, in terms of, um, I think ultimately what's going to happen too is it's, it's about supply and demand. Um, you know, Jim and I also had another conversation last night about pets and pet food. Mm-hmm. And now we're like curious, like, so what is the footprint of feeding your right. animals? You know, it's like a whole nother, that's mm -hmm. a, a whole nother conversation. Um, but being able to, you know, cut down on supply and demand. I mean, I know that just since we've gone plant-based and how many, how many DVDs and books that we've given out to people and then... We hear back from so many of them, and they're like, I bought 20 of those DVDs, and I gave them out to my friends. So it absolutely is a ripple effect. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, the main things that's really important when you are doing that is it's really difficult to do all by yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you are in a place where you're all by yourself and everybody's looking at you like you've got 20 eyeballs then, you know, find find a community online, you know, so right. you can have a support system, trade recipes, you know, talk about all the exciting things that happen to you when you go plant-based. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can find that community. I mean, ideally, you want community around you in person, but the fact that the internet avails you of any kind of community that you're searching for, and certainly robust communities in this plant-based movement everywhere you look, so... Mm -hmm. It's cool. Yeah. Let's talk about Muse. Okay. When did you come up with this crazy idea that you wanted to start a school? Oh, gosh. Um, and how insane was that idea? Well, <laughs> I didn't realize what I was getting <laughs> yeah. myself into. Um, November of 05, uh -huh. Jim and I were having the conversation. We had, Jim and I have five kids. And the two older ones had already gone through different schooling systems. And it was challenging to watch them go through it um, as a mother and watching their spirits get squashed and watching this, the educational institutions try to put them in a box. And um, so then Jim and I had uh, three children of our own and when it came time for the oldest of those three to start kindergarten, I started looking around at different schools. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to find a school that would, number one, ultimately feed them well, um, allow them to, to work in their own way, at their own pace, teach them about the environment, and basically celebrate them who they were as individuals. Mm-hmm. And what'd you come up with? Nada. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, good luck with that. Yeah, I couldn't uh -huh. find anything. And so I talked to Jim about homeschooling. 
and we were having this big conversation. It was interesting because he was talking about whether or not he should continue with deep sea exploration or he should go off and make this, you know, big studio film called Mm -hmm. Avatar. Mm -hmm. And I was over here struggling with, you know, do we homeschool? And that felt isolating for especially the daughter that we were talking about homeschooling. Um, And, uh, you know, or do we get maybe a group of the preschool kids together and, and start a little kindergarten. We could do it here in this building that we're in right now. We right, talked right. about this being our first school building. Um, and um, anyway, we kind of both went off in, in our different directions. He ended up obviously making Avatar, mm-hmm. and I ended up um, calling my sister, Rebecca Amos, who's got a uh, master's in early childhood development, and begged and pleaded with her to help me start the school. But what was the idea? You were just going to get some sort of friends or a couple families and kind of do an informal thing at your house. Yes, exactly. Uh It was just going to be this little thing, and we were all going to, you know, sit around and, you know, sing Kumbaya and all get along and create this cute little school. Right. And And I I would imagine, like, I mean, Jim being kind of an iconoclast mm -hmm. and a, you know, sort of a maverick thinker, I would think that he Mm -hmm. would embrace the idea of, you know, a different kind of education or be open to that idea. I mean, what were his thoughts on it originally? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, both of us, you know, he went to a year and a half of college. I didn't ever go to college. Um, Our schooling, he had a a pretty good education out of um, Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, we're very, very self-taught and... That's just kind of how we've rolled in the world. Um, but he was completely open to it. He's incredibly supportive of, you know, any crazy ideas I might have. <laughs> um, and that's probably, you know, the magic that we have between us because we both have each other's back on that front. It's important. It is. So one thing in terms of Muse, one thing led to another, and we ended up um, finding a, a facility right here in Malibu. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually my friend David Bryan, who used to be the head of New Roads, and our two older kids were at New Roads at this point, which is a great school. Um, and they had taken over this property, and they could only fill up half of it, and there was this cute little building with a kitchen. Mm-hmm. So we leased it for right. two that years. Lo- that space off on Las Flores, right? Exactly. Off yeah, yeah, I exactly. That. I remember, uh, it must have been maybe a year after you started the school, being down at, in Malibu at Cross Creek, and there was like an environmental fair, mm-hmm. like a green day or something like that. Like, you know, there was all these booths and vendors. So it looked like a just kind of a large farmer's market, but it was a bunch of green businesses. <clears throat> and it was either you or your sister, I don't remember, but it was just a little desk 
and a chair and you had a little sign that said Muse and you were just sitting there by yourself <laughs> wanting to talk to anybody who would talk to you about your school. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow, you know, I didn't see too many people coming to talk to you. And I was like, I wonder how that's going. Yeah. I mean, this was many years ago. It must have been right at the beginning. It was. It probably was in our first year. Yeah. And it was me sitting at it that little you. table. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I would talk to anybody. I who think would Julie listen. and I came by and said hi and talked to you for a minute. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, I just, yeah. I don't know why, but I vividly remember that. No, we and started. And I remember thinking, like, it's got to be really hard to start a school. You know, and I really had no idea. But we started with 11 children and in this little one-room schoolhouse, basically, mm-hmm. and had a garden. I mean, all of the things that we're doing now, it was just tiny. Right. <laughs> and now we start at two years old, so we have an amazing early childhood program, and we go all the way through high school. And um, we have, gosh, I think close to 180 children 180, now, yeah. two campuses, uh-huh. and we are working diligently on um, Muse Global to open schools around the world. Oh, this is news to me. Yeah. I don't know about this. Yeah. Oh, wow. I know. It's really cool. It's really cool. And we're keeping within the Greek mythology of the nine muses. So our first rollout will probably be, um, you know, nine clusters of nine. So 81 schools around the world. And we have an unbelievable amount of interest. Um, in fact, I might be going to Dubai in a couple of days to oh, wow. to meet with the people over there. Um, but in Europe, France... Uh, China, India, so many different places. And what's exciting to me about that is that you're not only educating the children, but what ends up happening is the children take this information home. Mm -hmm. They want to know, you know, why can't we, even if we don't have a garden, can we, can we set up a window box in the kitchen and grow some vegetables and, you know, we can compost too. And, you know, it would be good to eat plant-based, and hear all the reasons why, um, you know, so it, it will give us a platform and an ability to be able to spread the message through, through education, through the children, to the mommies, to the families, you know, infiltrate as much as we can mm-hmm. around the world. So that's, an, that's another avenue of, of bringing the plant-based um, information out into the world. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's a beautiful thing to have sort of been watching this thing flourish over the years. And, you know, now, as you know, my two daughters are attending Muse. Um, I know they're, <laughs> they're loving it, by the way, it's been really an amazing experience. And I think to bring it back to those kind of three ideals that formed the premise upon which you wanted to, you know, create a new way of educating this idea of, you know, sort of fostering self-esteem, you know, good nutrition and allowing kids to kind of work at their own pace I mean, that's really been my daughter's experience, right? Like it's almost, it's small enough that every child has kind of their own course set by their teacher in terms of what they want to explore and how they're going to explore it that is premised upon, you know, them being passionate about something and then using that as a focal point to bring an educational opportunity uh, to surround that and all the disciplines. Is that yeah. fair to say? It is, absolutely. I mean, it's... it's. Um what excites me mostly about it is that every child that comes into the school, we ask them what they love, not their parents. We ask the child. 
And when their little eyes start to twinkle and they get all fidgety and excited about something that they want to do, and then we build the academics into that, what happens is kids that don't like to read, kids that hate math, kids that, you know, say they hate science, all of a sudden these children are working two, three, and sometimes four grade levels ahead of the state and national standards because they love what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had kids cry because they can't go to school on Saturdays (laughs) or because they're Christmas break or because we're letting out for the summertime. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It is amazing. And it's, it's, it seems so commonsensical. Like, of course, like if you get them excited about what they're doing, then they'll be self-propelled. Right. But our whole system is kind of set up in opposition to that, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, and so it takes a crazy maverick like you to (laughs) spearhead this thing. And it's been beautiful to, to see it grow. And, and, you know, we had our, we've had our own journey with this. It was very similar to your own, you know, with our, our older boys had kind of gone through more traditional schooling and we were able to kind of see the, you know, the negatives and the positives built into that. Um, but with respect to our daughters, you know, Julie specifically, cause she was really leading the charge with this. She was feeling the same way that you were feeling. Mm. And we had gatherings at our house with friends and we were going to try to do our own thing at our house. And, never could really get it off the ground. And meanwhile, like you're on this track, you know, over here doing what you're doing. And then when you moved into the campus, that's literally like, you know, right around the corner from our house. And we went and checked it out. I was like, this is, why are we trying to recreate something that already exists that's over here that we can step right into? And I'm, I'm so glad that we have. It's really been um, very empowering for our girls. And it's it's been a privilege to kind of be part of that community. And I think community really is what, is really of the most importance in the kind of tone that you've set over there. There's so many gatherings for the parents to be involved and, and you have your muse talks where you bring in these amazing people that get to speak. And um, you were one of them. I was, <laughs> I was the pilot case. Now you're onto the real, the fancy people. But, um, yeah, it, there is a real sense of, of family over there that I hope you can, uh, hold on to as you continue to grow. And, and the campus is, I mean, basically you took over this old, like, sort of defunct summer camp, right? And all the, the classrooms are cabins, and they're, they're all like their own, you know, unique art pieces. Um, and we were there, what was it? Was it last spring when you had the kind of ceremony to um, introduce and unveil the, the solar panels? What are they called? The uh, sunflower, solar sunflower. solar sunflowers. flowers. Uh-huh. Yeah, so how many of them? Are there five of there them? There are five of them. Right. So explain what these are. So this was a birthday present that Jim gave to me for my 50th birthday. And, um, you know, most, most girls probably like to get jewelry and maybe a week at the spa or something like that. That's not who I am. He had me in absolute tears when he gave me, he gave me a um, presentation of, uh, it was a picture of, it was four pictures of the campus and photoshopped in were these solar flowers. And they stand about 25 feet tall, and they're 28 feet in diameter, and they track the sun just like a real flower does and generate um, about 90% of all of the energy for the campus. Mm -hmm. And we have a dash dashboard is that what they call it i don't know it's uh, yeah i think control I think, panel well it's on the, the ipad uh-huh i don't know it's with the, the 
kids have them. You know, yeah, it's interface. A, yeah, an interface. We'll call it an interface. Um, and so the children can actually track the um, the input, the solar input, mm-hmm. and how much output they're creating. So all of a sudden, the kids are. You know, if you don't shut the door when you're supposed to shut the door or keep it open when you're supposed to keep it open or turn off the lights or turn them on or, you know, those kinds of things. So they're, they're highly aware of energy usage at this point. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the panels are, are, are fueling about 90% of the energy use of the school. Is that yes. about right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're amazing. They're, 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 they're unique works of art. And the solar panels sort of are a circular array that form the kind of sunflower pattern. And they're massive. They're huge. Yeah. And what was really cool when at the unveiling, when, when James was talking about it, <clears throat> he was talking about how, you know, he came up with the design and then compiled a team of engineers to kind of, you know, further conceptualize and construct these things. And there was a moment where he realized, like, this could be a business. Like, this is a really viable, cool thing. And they could have, they could have sort of, you know, protected the intellectual property for their own purposes. But instead, there was a decision to just make it open source so anybody could take this design, copy right. it, and use it. That's right. Which is really very yeah. cool. Yeah. So are people doing it? You know, actually, there, yeah, um, there are a couple science centers and parks mm-hmm. um, and, you know, th- those types of people who are calling and asking for the information and, yeah, so it's really cool. That is really cool. Yeah. It was a great birthday gift. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You. <laughs> it's, you know, he comes up with the, he uh-huh. just, yeah, he's a cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. But, yeah, the, the, what... The other really special thing about that campus is that, um, you know, we're dye-free, toxic-free, pesticide-free zone. And all of the, everything, because it was a a 50-year-old camp, Mm -hmm. and we basically gutted the whole thing and tore some of the buildings down. So all of the... All of the, um, the rims around the windows and the baseboards and... Um, gosh, chairs, tables, all kinds of things. Are you are that's reclaimed wood from buildings right. that we took down? So, I mean, yeah, everything that got used for the sort of repairs and and reformation of the campus was using materials that were already like on site, right? Or reclaimed, or at least re like recycled. Yeah, so most of them were. Uh-huh. Most of them were. Um, and then we did. You know, we were able to do some swaps with. Um, for instance, our, our carpeting or our rugs uh, was an environmental company, and we were able to give them our old rugs, mm-hmm. and they recycled them because th- that's what they do. They recycle and, and, um, and churn them out. So, you know, there are no fire retardants in any of the fabrics, couches, rugs, uh-huh. you know, nothing off gases, everything zero VOC and... It's, uh, we don't use any pesticides for any of rodent control. We actually have a falconer. Yeah, the, who, falconer, the falconer. A falconer who flies. There's actually a falconer on <laughs> campus. It's a guy walking around with a falcon on his hand. Yeah. With the little cap on the falcon. The falcon yeah. keeps the predators away from the garden. Yep. Yeah, and, and it's, it works beautifully. So on this sort of theme of sustainability... That obviously uh, dovetails nicely into the diet. You guys have a garden there. All the kids are 
learning how to grow food and a percentage of that food makes it, its way into the kitchen that finds its way onto the plates for the kids. 90%, 90%. of the produce that's grown there goes into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have 120 raised beds. In the, uh, in the upper school, they actually grow uh, a surplus of produce and um, they take it to uh, local restaurants around the corner right. and by bicycle by bicycle so that they, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh-huh. so that there's you know no carbon footprint and um you know these kids are really passionate about that so they've created their curriculum around that they created a business plan they went to the restaurants themselves and you know made the deal with them and uh-huh. they grow them they know what their inputs are and their outputs are and their and their yields are, and um, it's, it's, it's really impressive. Cool. Yeah. Do you know uh, Stephen Ritz, who's an educator in the Bronx? No. Oh, I had him on my podcast. You, you got you to meet this guy. He's got to come out and, and be a Muse speaker. I'll give you his information. Okay. But he, yeah. he basically has transformed the landscape of the Bronx by teaching young kids how to grow food. And it started with Tower Gardens in his classroom, and then it kind of morphed out into vacant lots across the Bronx and, and literally taking you know, large amounts of underprivileged kids who are, you know, have a lot of problems at home and socioeconomically and et cetera, um, and really getting them to invest in this process of growing food and learning about food and really transforming their lives and the community itself. And he's an incredibly passionate, energetic speaker. He's done a couple of amazing TED Talks, but he, he'd be a guy who would be great to come to Muse and talk to the kids. Yeah, definitely. I'll try he to sounds connect awesome. you guys. Yeah, he's cool. But um, the thing that really, really grabbed headlines across the world is when you guys made this decision that your school lunch was going to be 100%, plant-based, 100% plant-based starting this year. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that was the thing, like of all the stuff that you're doing, all of which we've kind of gone through all these amazing things. That was the thing that like seemed to be the thing that everyone has like grabbed onto and, you know, sort of put the school on the map in a, in a global sense in terms of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, so what went into that decision and what was it like kind of uh, making that announcement to the parents and kind of <laughs> seeing what happened? <laughs> As a result of that. <laughs> it's multidimensional. Yes, I would imagine that was tricky. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, we realized um, after, you know, Jim and I both gave quite a few different speeches and we were out there talking about being an environmentalist and realizing that you kind of can't be a full-on, full-fledged, walk-in-the-walk environmentalist if you're still eating animals. So here I was, you know, founder of this environmental school and still serving animal products. Mm-hmm. And so a um, couple times a year we get together with the, the core group and, you know, talk about, you know, one year, three year, five year plans and what are we going to do in the future? And I dropped the bomb that, I thought we should go plant-based. Well, Elliot was there, Mm -hmm. the guy who gave me forks over knives, and he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. (laughs) And everybody else kind of went, no, we can't, no, we can't do that. And mainly, ultimately, it was out of fear that um, 
people wouldn't go for it. Mm-hmm. We did come to a decision and we did decide to do it. What we what we did though was we decided to take a full year and a half and educate our community because you know, like we talked about earlier, some people can go cold turkey and some people really need to you need to go hold their hand and walk them through it. And there was a lot of there's a lot of fear behind it because people think that you will fall over and die. If one you, meal out of three of the day. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, people really are nervous that if you don't eat flesh three times a day, that you're just going to shrivel up and die, you know? And it's like, well, what about the protein? Well, you can ask any doctor in America, you know, have they ever treated a protein deficiency? I think I heard you mm-hmm. say this. Did I say that? I think I, I, I probably think heard it, it somewhere you. else too, but yeah. You know, no have, doctor that I know of has okay. ever treated a patient with a protein deficiency. No, exactly. But boy, have they treated a lot of things created by protein like cancers and heart disease and diabetes and, you know, all those kinds of lovely things. Um, so we made the announcement and we lost, we probably lost about 40 to 50 families uh-huh. when we decided yeah, we were going to go when you're small, that's a based. lot. Yeah, a it was kind of scary, actually. Um, what ended up happening, though, is we created a food committee and we brought families into that and we really talked about, you know, what was the best way to educate the community and let them know that, you know, not only were their children going to, you know, not fall over and shrivel up and die, but that they would, you know, it would really help them on so many levels. But they were very worried. They were worried about the brain development Mm -hmm. and essential fatty acids and, you know, all of those things. We brought Neil Barnard in to... um, to write a lot of um, information for us to, to hand out um, and Dr. Dean Ornish and just to really, you know, again, to get the science behind us and to get the facts behind us um, that what we were doing was, you know, very, very healthy, not only for the environment, but for the, the children and their, their developmental growth. Um, and, you know, from that, we were able to kick off a campaign, which is one meal a day for the planet, OMD, mm-hmm. which I gave you the book you earlier. The book really cool um, book. but to really let them know if they really had a problem with it, that it was one meal a day, you know, one meal a day and one snack a day. And so now we have, um, we have our sustainability pledge. So you can do one meal a day for the planet, which saves, and I don't have those stats in front of me, um, but it saves an enormous yeah, amount like of water. 45 pounds of grain, 1,000 gallons of water. Uh, I can't remember. A certain percentage of CO2 emissions in animals' life. Like I, you know, exactly. I a, uh, the children can probably spout right, this probably faster than I can. Yeah. Right. Um, so we do one meal a day for the planet, two meals a day for the planet, or all in. And it, we were amazed at how many people, you know, checked the box all in. And we've had an influx of families come to the school because we're plant-based. We had a woman, she moved all the way from Missouri 
to bring her children to Muse because wow. it's plant-based. So it's, you know, it's really pulled in a, a whole nother community and the children love the, I mean, the food is amazing. Kayla is an amazing it is. I've chef. Had, I've eaten lunch there before. It, it, I mean, like, oh my God, like they get to eat this for lunch every day. It's extraordinary. You yeah. know, it's really such a privilege and a gift. And I feel like that's an important, you know, kind of the lesson baked into that is this idea of being, you know, true to who you are, right? Like you can't just be half of what you say you are. And when you have to kind of bring everything into alignment, it's a scary thing and you lose people initially. Um, but those are the people that probably, you know, weren't best served by what you're doing anyway. And ultimately you're going to, <clears throat> you know, attract the people that you want to have part of that community and it will grow from there. Yeah. And we've had so many schools around the nation reach out to us. And I actually have to say in a, a couple different countries as well, but reach out to us to say, how did you do that? And, you know, can you help us? Can you give us recipes? Can you help us look at ways to, you know, make our school plant-based as well? Yeah, that's really important because that was kind of the next line of kind of conversation I want to get into is that, look, not everybody can go to Muse. This is not accessible, but it kind of exists as this model, right? right. And so how can we take these principles that seem to be functioning well um, and either scale it like you're intending with the Muse Global or, or, you know, find other ways to have it modeled in currently existing institutions so that more kids can get exposed to these ideas that seem to be working with the kids. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I think it's, you know, the opportune moment. I think a lot of certainly, um, you know, in, in coastal cities, you know, San Francisco, L.A., West Coast, East Coast kind of thing, I mean, People are looking at this more at in schools. The vegetarian schools are in New York City, and the only reason that they're not completely vegan is because um, there's it's mandatory to serve milk. Yeah. Um, and I think PS two forty four. Yeah, yeah. And those people, I actually met them in New York. They're fantastic. Uh -huh. I went to the school too. The Coalition yeah. for Healthy Schools, or uh -huh. yeah. Amy Hamlin. That's right. The woman behind That's right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and. Um, yeah, and putting greenhouses, uh, Cecil Robards in New York City. I mean, she was the first one to get a greenhouse put mm -hmm. on a school there, and I think they've they're over thirty now, mm -hmm. you know, in different schools. And um, what Kimball Musk has done with putting gardens in schools, and right. and Kelly Meyer, and you know, so there there are so many people that are doing that. And you know, I even talked to my nieces and nephews in Oklahoma, and you know, they're they're starting to shift. And when, when you see that, when you realize that people in the, really in like the middle of America are starting to shift their ideas around, around gardening and around food, um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. It is exciting, but it's also kind of weirdly and ironically like full circle because you're saying middle America, but that's the breadbasket. That's where farming and gardening kind of you know, <laughs> began in America, exactly. right? So it's like now you're introducing this maverick concept of gardening or learning how to grow your own food. Well, those are the people that were originally doing it. You well, know? the only thing that they really grow down there now is, is corn and soy right. to feed the cows. Right, right. <laughs> Exactly. And this is the bigger problem that we have to face. Of That's course. right. Exactly. What is the what is the experience of kind of watching a child 
um, go from that place of, of being totally disconnected from food and where food comes from and then learning how to, you know, not only plant a seed, but take care of that seed, foster it, fertilize it, and then ultimately, you know, pull it out of the garden and bring it into the kitchen and then eat it. Like, is there a way to encapsulate the impact of that on the child and what it's like to kind of see that educational experience taking place? It's a beautiful moment when the child arrives at Muse and the parents say, my children doesn't eat anything that's green. So I'm really worried they're going to starve at lunchtime. And usually it's about a month to two months in. And the children are doing exactly that. They're planting the seed. They're working with, you know, our gardening experts. And they're harvesting. They're, they're eating the vegetables right out of the garden, mm-hmm. directly from the plant to their mouths. And before you know it, they're sitting around a table with all of their peers and eating green beans with flaxseed oil on them. And their parents are dumbfounded and uh-huh. can't understand how in the world that that could possibly happen. But it also, there's, again, it comes back to that support thing. So, you know, if you've got eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds, six-year-olds, and their friends are trying it, you know, like, yeah, it's really good. Try it. Uh-huh. They will because, you know, it's that peer pressure thing in a super positive way. Well, then the, and then the education starts to work in the reverse because then the kid goes home and starts, you know, educating exactly, the parents. Exactly, exactly. You know? Why don't we have green beans at right. home? Which yeah. is an amazing thing. That aren't, no, I don't like the ones in the can. I want the ones that grow in the dirt. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, incredible. I mean, it's hard to really estimate the impact of that. I mean, really the fundamental kind of core principle of sustainability, you know, existing as a centerpiece of this school is really worked into the fiber of everything that you're doing. And that's like becomes second nature for young people, you know, it becomes part of who they are and their character. What does that mean, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the line and whatever they end up doing with their lives? Global champions. There you go. That's what we like to grow at Muse. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. (laughs) No, because it's, because as adults, we do, we recycle, we drive our Priuses, we, you know, try to change our light bulbs. We try to do all of these things and we dislocate our shoulders, patting ourselves on the back for doing that right. and calling ourselves environmentalists. You start at a very young age and it's true. It just becomes second nature to them and they, they don't know anything that's different. Mm-hmm. That's just what you do. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to I want to kind of uh, uh, step into uh, a day in the life of Susie and James Cameron. And I would imagine that there is no typical day, but mm-hmm. you know, what is it sort of like to you know be in this world that you're mm-hmm. in, where you guys are juggling so many different things? And how do you make your marriage function properly in that context? Oh. Gosh, that's, that's a, a loaded that's a, question. I was going to say, sorry, that's a loaded one. <laughs> um, we can parse it out. No, I don't, I don't think anybody's... I mean, people have asked me, you know, pieces of it, but I've never had actually done a day in the life of... Well, um, 
you know, again, we have, we have a, a gaggle of kids. Um, so it's like, you know, he's a, he's a daddy. I'm a mommy. We get mm-hmm. up, we get the kids up. It's time to make breakfast. It's got, you know, right. Where's my, where's my blue shirt? I can't find my blue shirt. I've got to find it. You know, no, I don't really want a burrito for breakfast. I want, you know, the, the typical things. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think just that piece alone, the feeding the animals and feeding the children and feeding everybody. And, um, you know, that's, that's pretty typical. Um, I think of, any family right well there's waking nothing up in the morning yeah there's nothing like kids to pull you out of yourself and and yeah. force you to really understand what's most important yeah but at the same time kind of butting up against that you mm. have all of these environmental concerns you're trying to run a school you know jim is in the process of of you know trying to make avatar too and any one of those you could just lose yourself completely and you know become sort of you know obsessed with uh, whatever project that you're in, but you're kind of juggling all of these things, any one of which would be plenty for anybody. Yeah. So how do you balance that, still find time for your relationship and just kind of enjoying your life? Um, I think it's, you know, again, it's support. Um, Jim and I are really so... We... You, our both of our families are intact. We're just um, came. We came from really grounded places, I guess, mm-hmm. and we want to provide that for our children. Um, and Jim and I just support each other five hundred and fifty percent, no matter what. We we always like to use the flying metaphor um, when you're taught when you're flying an airplane, <laughs> and you want to know, you know, you want somebody to look out their right window off of the right wing and see another aircraft over there. You might say it's on, on your three o'clock mm-hmm. and, or if it's behind you, it's on your six o'clock or if it's on to the left of you, it's on your nine o'clock or it's, you know, at 12 o'clock. And so we always say, you know, I, I got your, I got t- your six or I got your three. Yeah. All <laughs> okay. of those things, because sometimes he's leading and I'm following. Sometimes we're side by side and sometimes I'm leading. And he's following. Right. Um, so I think that piece in and of itself is, is really, really important. And we both allow each other. I shouldn't say allow. We both support each other in going out and, and living our passions mm-hmm with whatever that is. Um, I mean, I'm currently writing books and, you know, doing Food Choice Task Force and the school and coming up with all kinds of, you know, fun, crazy other things. He is, in fact, um, writing Avatar 2, 3, and 4. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and we'll probably... And he works, he's got an office here, right? So does most of that take place here? He I does. mean, he has Lightstorm, there's offices for that, but like, how right. much of his work is here versus... As of right like, now, while he's writing, I would say he's here um, 98% of the time. Mm-hmm. And we call that his man cave. Mm-hmm. So he's been spending a lot of time in his man cave writing. Um, he'll probably go into production in... 
four to five months, I would imagine. Oh, that's coming up. That's yeah, sooner yeah. than I thought. And that's going to be in New Zealand, though, right? Um, the live action part, part will be in New Zealand. Um, and then he's at Manhattan Beach Studios. Uh-huh. Um, so he will be there every day. And that will be a big shift. But we've gone through it once. So now, you know, going through it a second time. Right. Um, we but all, have, but two, are two, three, and four going to be produced simultaneously yes. in one big shot? So yes. this is, you're in for a long road here for a well, little bit, right? Like n- Number one took about five to six years uh-huh. uh, because they were writing the book as they went along and creating all kinds of new technologies. And so he really feels like... Um, yeah, of course they're going to create some new technologies because he just kind of has to do those kinds of things. But it's not like starting from scratch mm-hmm. like they did the last time. So he really feels like he'll be able to do the three films in the same time period. Um, but all of the motion capture and everything will be done here in the States, and then um, New Zealand will be doing the uh, the live action, mm-hmm. and then all of the special effects are done through Weta. Right. Down in New Zealand as well. Right. And does so, he do, like, does he cut the film here at the house? Or is this sort of like the the HQ for kind of editing? Because editing is taking place all over the world, I would imagine, with all the effects. Um, editing is all in-house. The special effects are, are out. Right, right, yeah. right, right. No, he, so he editing, and his team do all the physical all editing, the editing is actually going to happen at the house here? Um, yeah, it did for the first yeah. one. Yeah. They yeah. had, they have editing stations down at the studio as well. Um, because it takes teams. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I mean, it'll, you know, he, he has this slogan, if it's not challenging, it's not fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the first one was, you know, incredibly challenging. So he has to up the ante. Um, but we're excited. I can't, I can't wait. I can't wait to see them. Right. And this is so. the part where you're going to tell us all about what the plot of. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The most famously like tight lipped, uh, you know, project that there yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the, the, we call stuff. them the launch codes. The, is that what it is? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all, I'm sure, resting in his head, and, and only parts of that information are vested in other individuals, yeah. except for maybe you. Yeah. Maybe you know, and you won't even say, right? My, <laughs> if I told you, then I'd have to kill you. Yeah, I know. And I've, I like living, so <laughs> exactly. I'm not even going to ask you. Exactly. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, um, we got to wrap it up here in a couple of minutes, but there's there's a couple other things I wanted to talk about. The other thing is is that um, this uh, you know your sustainability uh, advocacy extends even further, right? To garments, you have this red dress, uh, green. Or, no, what is it called? Red carpet, green dress program. Yes. Yeah. So tell me what that's yeah. about. So um, for the last six years, uh, we ran a contest. Um, a dress design contest, red carpet, green dress. And the idea was to, uh, it was a global um, dress design contest. And and the idea was to be able to create a dress out of sustainable fabrics that would be worn by an actress. And then we made a tux, an actor, um, on the red carpet at the Oscars. Um, And we did that for, for six years. The first year was when Avatar was was at the Oscars, um, which was the idea. I thought it was going to be kind of a one-time thing and then realized 
I'd opened up a can of worms, mm-hmm. as it were, and realized just how devastating the um, the fashion industry is on our environment as well. Yeah, it's harder to do that math. <laughs> I mean, when you look at your plate and with all the things that we've talked about, it's easier to kind of like conceptualize the impact of that. But we so blindly just put clothes on and we're even more divorced from the process of how that's created versus right. our food. Right, exactly. Um, you know, I think what has, what has come out of that, and it's something I started realizing very early on that even making a sustainable dress isn't that sustainable because you only wear those kind of dresses once. And if you're really, really brave, you might wear them twice. Right. You know? So the whole thing is... (laughs) It's silly. So, but what I ended up saying was that, you know, it's not red carpet green dress isn't just about a pretty dress on the red carpet. It's about the fact that we all wear clothes every single day from the moment that we're born well, until the day that we die. It's a symbolic die. gesture. It's a way of messaging to millions and millions of people that watch that show. It is. To maybe think a little bit more about what that entails. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm taking that a step further at this point because, um, that w- does reach a certain audience. I mean, it's the, it is the most red watched red carpet in the world. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to, you know, I mean, that's another motto in our family is go big or go home or, you know, after, clearly <laughs> after Jim yeah. did his dive, it was go deep or go home. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm, I'm, um, looking actively to create a clothing line that mm. of clothes that people can wear every day because people just automatically, when they're interviewing me about red carpet, green dress, they say, Oh, you must wear sustainable clothes every day. And I say, Oh, well, I wish I could, mm-hmm. you know, but it's really, really challenging to find jeans or a t-shirt right. or, you know, and something that's, that's environmentally friendly. That's, that's produced in a way that's not devastating to the environment. And that's, that's healthy for your body, healthy for the planet. All of those different things. So, um, so that's <laughs> that's one of my latest endeavors as well. Right, is um, creating a, lo- a clothing line. That, well, let me know when you have a men's line. I'll do them both at the up. same time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. Absolutely. Where can I get that tux? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, this would be like everyday clothes. Uh huh. Yeah. Tux. A tux is easy. I mean, we can right. do that with our eyes closed. Right, right, you know, right. I can totally put you in touch with those kinds of people. Right. But it's just like, you know, the long sleeve T-shirt and the pair of jeans or, you know, a cute dress or a pair of board shorts or, you know, whatever it might be. Something that you feel okay putting on every right. single day. And that doesn't kind of look like dorky and hippie. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. Like, like there are some cool designers doing interesting things in this field, but, but it's, but it's, there's, there's a lot more that could be done. You know, I feel like that's a wide open market and the, mm-hmm. the trick is figuring out how to do it so that it doesn't become exorbitantly expensive because when you take all of those things into account and you really do want to manufacture that garment in that way, mm-hmm. you're looking at price points that don't make sense for most people. Right. So <clears throat> that's the goal. You know what and I mean? that's what we're really distilling down is to to create the clothing line that that will have a price point that mm-hmm. the people can afford. Right. And it's hard to compete when you're competing with, you know, sweatshops and, you know, God knows where, where, you know, the environmental runoff of these factories. It's like you just you buy your T-shirt at the Gap or wherever and you don't think about it. But there's a yeah. huge impact to that. 
So it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. But I think there's a lot of growth opportunity in that sector. Yeah, definitely. There's a great documentary that I just watched over the weekend um, that's called True Cost. And it's mind-blowing. And it, it's all about the fast fashion industry. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. So what's, uh, what's the next big project that you're excited about? Or is it just moving all this stuff forward? I think it's moving. Food Choice Task Force, is that the focus? It is. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, that's, I live and breathe that every single day. Um, because I think that's the most urgent thing that we can all do right now to make the world a better place for our children. Um, and it's something, like we talked about before, it's, it is as one simple, elegant thing that everyone can do is just to look at what's on their plate mm-hmm. and eat more plants. So if someone's listening and they're inspired and they're ready to get active or get more active in some of the things that we've been talking about today, what are some resources that you can direct people towards, whether they're books or documentaries or some of the websites that, that are affiliated with the organizations that you're working on? I mean, where, where do you commonly direct people? Um, well, you're a great resource, dude. <laughs> well, if they're listening, they already know, but they're tired of me. This is about you. Um, yeah, you know, I think Forks Over Knives is amazing. Um, it's, it's really eye-opening. They have a great website full of recipes and stories about real people mm-hmm. every day um, who have turned around disease and lost weight and look great and have energy, all of those things. They've got um, cookbooks. Um, the China Study has a new cookbook. Um, they have plans. Um, there's, um, what is it called? My, my um, a Plant-Based Journey. By Lenny Mulraith. Oh, Lenny Mulraith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mulraith. I know her. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, cool. And that's that's actually a really great book. It's because it doesn't matter where you are in the journey. You can be just starting or <coughs> three and a half years into it, and it's got all kinds of great different ideas. Um, the um, PCRM has their 21-day Kickstart program, Yeah, PCRM.org. Yeah, and they're great. They're great. Dr. Barnard is... He's amazing. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah really awesome. Um, Rip Esselstein uh-huh. has great stuff, you know, and especially for guys who, you know, they kind of think that they've, you know, that guys right. got to eat meat, you know, Um this is a little side note, but it always kind of makes me chuckle, and I'll probably, I'll probably blush. But there was a great. Um, speaking of PCRM, they did a they did a great riff on the anti smoking campaigns. The anti smoking campaigns that really made a difference was when they put the big billboard up and they put the the hunky uh, cowboy on Marlboro the billboard, Man Marlboro Man guy, uh-huh. with the cigarette that was limp. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and last year during National Meat Week, PCRM put out an ad with a guy standing next to a, a barbecue uh-huh. with a hot dog on a fork uh-huh. that was limp. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but a lot of people don't 
connect those. It's like the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. And, you know, people, there's, there are so many connections with erectile dysfunction and eating meat mm-hmm. um, that men don't really get. Yeah, that's the way to get a guy to start paying attention. Yeah. If there's a guy who's, who's struggling yeah. with that problem, yeah. uh, you know, that's a way in. Well, that's actually another thing that we're, that we're doing. Jim and I are executive producing a film called um, <coughs> Men Meet and the Most Dangerous Myth. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the fact that, you know, men feel like they need to eat meat in order to be manly. And it's... Um, I've actually spoken to you about it. Is this the same as the Game Changers movie? Is that the Game new, Changers? That's the new working title. That's the title no, the actually, that's now, the or? tagline. Oh, okay. It's Game Changers. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Where Where are they in the process of want, getting this? We want you in there too. <laughs> I, I don't need to be in the movie. What's the where Where is everything with the movie right now? Um, There's been a lot of talk about. It. I mean, this well, movie's been a long time in the making. So, well, it has um, Louis Soyos. Who he's um, he's just releasing uh, Racing Extinction right mm-hmm. now, and he's actually in I believe he's in Paris with Cop right now. Um, so as soon as that's all really, and I think it releases tomorrow, December second. I think. Oh, Racing to Extinction. Racing Extinction. Racing Extinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's amazing. Uh-huh. I haven't um, seen it yet. Anyway, but he's he, our director. He's the, for people that are listening, he's the guy who directed The Cove. Right, exactly. Right. And he's extraordinary. Yeah, so that's exciting. Yeah, so he's our director for Game Changers, and uh, so that will kick into gear at the beginning of the year. Yeah, that's very cool. Big time. Yeah. yeah. I think that project has the, has the potential to really shift awareness and create some interesting conversations. So I'm excited for that to come out. Yeah. Just to have these, you know, totally ripped, awesome, sexy guys, you know, and they're all plant-based. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to get people to pay attention, right? Yeah. Yeah. Back to the vanity part. Exactly. You know. exactly. Well, listen, um, this was amazing. The work that you do is beyond inspiring. And as I said at the outset, nothing but crazy, mad respect. I don't know where you guys find the energy to move all these projects forward uh, and do it with such um, grace and uh, attention to quality. It's really inspiring for me to you know, watch from the sidelines and also, you know, sort of be part of the community through, through Muse and sort of be adjunct to your mission. It's really a beautiful thing. And, uh, and, uh, it's going to be exciting to see how some of these projects continue to blossom and unfold and hopefully create more conversations and catalyze much needed change. Cool. Well, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for those beautiful words. I appreciate yeah. you being here. Um, if people want to connect with you, uh, where's the best place for, I mean, you're everywhere on the internet, but where's the best place to direct them? Um, SusieAmos.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're on Twitter. Susie Musing on Twitter. Susie Musing on Twitter. And you're on Facebook and, and all I've that kind of stuff. I've got Facebook. I got that on, yeah. And the website for Food Choice Task Force, what is that? Is there a website for that? Uh, foodchoicetaskforce.org. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they can go so foodchoicetaskforce.org, susieamoscameron.com, museschool.org. Museschool.org, of course. Redcarpetgreendress.com. You have a lot of websites. <laughs> <laughs> Any of the above. 
Right. Great. All right. Both. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. All right. Peace. Out. Plants. Groovy. <laughs>all right we did it that's it what'd you guys think i thought that was pretty awesome don't forget lots of amazing resources in this week's show notes on the episode page at richroll.com including ways you can learn more and get involved so please make a point of checking all of that out i put a ton of time into collecting collating and curating interesting relevant content uh, to help take your edification beyond the earbuds and while you're at it make a point to subscribe to my newsletter. I got weekly podcast updates, product offers, just interesting, relevant content, never any spam. I'm never going to spam you. If you want access to the entire RRP catalog beyond the most recent 50 episodes that you find on iTunes, well, I've got a free app for that. Just search Rich Roll in the App Store or on iTunes. It'll pop right up. Download it. It's free. You'll have the entire catalog in the palm of your hand. For all your plant-powered and RRP swag and merch, visit richroll.com. we got a great offer going on right now. All nutrition products are an astounding 50% off now through New Year's weekend. That's amazing. Also, we got signed copies of the Plant Power Way and Finding Ultra. we got Julie's Guided Meditation Program. we got 100% organic Plant Power t-shirts. we got Plant Power Tech Tees for the gym, for running. We've got sticker packs. We've got temporary tattoos. We've got limited edition art prints, all kinds of awesome, cool stuff to take your health and your life to the next level. Keep sending in your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. I've got online courses at mindbodygreen.com, the ultimate guide to plant-based nutrition and uh, the art of living with purpose. Both really great courses. Go to mindbodygreen.com, click on video courses to learn more. Affordably priced, very helpful. I'm very proud of those courses. Thank you so much for supporting the show, for telling your friends, for sharing it on social media, all that good stuff. I hope everybody is having an amazing holiday season. I appreciate all of you, and I will see you back here next week. Just one episode this week, you guys. Take care. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Bless you. Love you. Talk soon. Peace. Plants. (laughs) 